Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, if you have your Bibles, follow me to the book of Romans once again. Romans chapter 50. Oh, you singing? Huh? Oh, okay. I didn't know. I thought that that was the end. I was I was out of loop on that one. My, my bad. Hey, uh, Romans chapter 15 then. Verses uh, 14 through 21 will be our text today. Romans 15 verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be accepted, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all that all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we do thank you for this opportunity to be here, to be in your house, to spend time uh, fellowshipping, and but most importantly, Lord, to spend time worshiping you, and honoring you, studying your word, and understanding more about you, and how we ought to live in light of the redemption that you have afforded us in Christ Jesus. And today, Lord, we ask that you would, again, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand and comprehend the truth of your word. And as always, Lord, use this feet vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in the short rows now in Romans. Maybe four more sermons in the book of Romans and we'll be, we'll be done and we'll be headed into Exodus chapter 20 where we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. So at a minimum, there'll be ten sermons on the Ten Commandments because there's ten of them, right? Uh, but there'll probably, probably be a few more than just ten. 
So far in Romans, Paul has, you remember the first part, 1 through 11, he worked hard to lay the foundation, uh, the theological foundation for the gospel of Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. Then in chapter 12, we made this transition to where Paul began to show us what it meant for us to live in light of this redemption that we have received from Christ Jesus. And then as we move into chapter 15 and 16, Paul is really beginning to tie up all the loose ends and to to bring this letter uh, to a close. And I think today in our section is the first paragraph by which Paul is beginning to wrap up his letter. And in wrapping up this letter, he gives us some of the reasons that he's written this letter. He gives us an idea of what his passion and what his hope and what his desire is for the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry, which he'll continue on in chapter 16 as we finish out the book. And then he'll have some greetings for those people that are there. But I think one of the things that we can glean from these passages, quite honestly, these are some of the harder passages for for me to try to preach from. Uh, It's easy to find uh, in the doctrinal passages those things that you can drive home uh, those points. And these, uh, a little bit more difficult to come up with ideas of how do you turn this into a sermon, right? Other than just reading this passage and let's go on uh, our way. But I think there's some examples that we can glean from the life of Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul told us in another place in scripture for us to emulate him as he emulated Christ, right? And so we can see kind of Paul's heart and his desire and how he carries himself in light of this gospel call that God placed on his life. And I think you and I can glean from that some examples for our life and some application for our life. So we're going to endeavor to look at this paragraph of scripture based on three primary headings. One, verses 14 through 16, we'll see Paul's purpose for writing, or at least one aspect of his purpose. We'll see more about that uh, as we move on. Then secondly, we'll see Paul's passion for ministry in verses 17 through 19. And then third, we're going to see Paul's plan for the future. And again, this is just one little element of his plan. We'll see another part of that plan later on as we move into chapter 16. So with that said, let's begin with uh, how Paul uh, begins to share with them the reason that he wrote for them. Now we saw in chapter one, the thesis statement that Paul made in this in this letter was, hey, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation to all those who believe for the Jew first and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. So at a minimum, he wrote so that he could share with them his understanding, his doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that they would understand that he knows exactly what they know as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he begins this section by telling us a little bit about his thoughts about the people to whom he is writing. Because I think if we read this letter in the outset and we don't get to chapter 15, at least this portion of the chapter, we might get this idea that Paul's writing to this church because he sees there's a doctrinal problem that he needs to straighten out. We've seen that in Paul's writing before, like the, the, the writing to uh, the church at Corinth. There were some issues in that church that had to be dealt with, right? You would think that there were some issues here, and there, there were some evidence that there might be potential issues, but Paul makes this very clear statement in this first section of this paragraph that he's writing to these people not because they don't know, but because they do know, and he's writing by way of reminder. But look what he says 
as we begin. He gives a commendation to the believers in Rome, which, as you know, are made up of Jew and Gentile believers. He says in verse 14, I myself, Paul says, am satisfied. Well, the word behind that is, is convinced or persuaded about you, my brothers. And then he lists three things that he is persuaded about them. So this is the character of those that he is writing to. This is what he understands their spiritual character to be. One, that you are full of goodness. So this goodness has to do with the, the moral character, the moral conduct that God expects from those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. That sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life is being manifest in the way we live and the way we think. He's saying to them, I understand you have a solid orthodoxy. You have, you have a solid understanding of doctrine and it's exhibited by the way that you live your life. You are full, you are replete with this goodness. Well, that ought to cause us to think about our own lives, right? How does the moral character and the goodness of God manifest itself in my life every day in light of the redeeming work and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? How does, it man how does God's character, his moral holiness, his goodness manifest itself in your life in the occupation that you have or whatever it is that you endeavor to do on a daily basis, how are you exhibiting the character of God? Or maybe as a church body, how can, can the people in this community look into this church? And the only way they can look into this church is to see you out and about in this community, right? How can they look in this church? Can they say that I am persuaded and convinced that the people who call themselves Christians at Friendship Baptist Church are full of the goodness of God? Now, I can't answer that for you because I really I only see most of you guys at a minimum one time a week, right? Maybe two times a week if you come on Wednesday night. So you can fool me, right? I can fool you for one day a week, right? What about every day of our life? Can people see the goodness of God in our character? They ought to be able to because of what God has done in us. He doesn't leave us like we were. He changes us and transforms us. And Paul says, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that you have this character of God in you, this goodness. Then he says, secondly, I'm convinced that you are full of knowledge. So he understands that, hey, it's not that they don't know these things. As a matter of fact, he's saying, I know that you know these things. You have solid doctrine. I believe that you understand this. Well, that causes us me to ask the question, at least about myself, could Paul look at my life and say, hey, I know that you are full of the knowledge of God. What about your life? Are you full of the knowledge of God? Do you make it a practice and a habit every day to be intentional in studying God's word and knowing who he is? Not, not just to fill your head with it, right? That, that's one aspect of it. But it ought to manifest itself, as Paul's already said, in how we live. But are you disciplined in discipling your own self? Parent, are you disciplined in discipling yourself so that you can disciple your children? Grandparents, are you using whatever influence you have over your grandchildren to disciple yourself and disciple your grandchildren? Can people look into your life and say, this person is full of the knowledge of God? 
And if you're hoping just to get that on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, then you're in trouble, right? It's an everyday activity in our life. We must make it the central aspect of who we are. We must, you know, when, when we were growing up and going to an independent Baptist church, the preacher, he, he didn't even have a TV in his house, right? Now, I'm not saying every member was like that, and he would, write, he would deride all the members who did have TVs in their house. But there is something to be said about entertainment today, right? How much time, you know, on your, on your iPhone or your Android or whatever it is, they got a little thing in there for screen time. You know? Well, take a gander at that, because you can get lost in the screen, Right? I know you've been like me. You've been watching the, the YouTube or whatever, and then you'll chase this rabbit down this rabbit hole because you'll see another video that's linked to this video. And before you know it, you know, three, three, four, five hours have gone by, and you say, man, where did they go? Well, it went into YouTube is where the day went. So how much time do we spend? And what about it as, as parents, you know? One of the things that began to happen whenever we got computers and TVs and smartphones and iPads and all these kinds of things, we, we use them as babysitters, right? We set our children in front of them and we put on what we think is a decent little cartoon for them to watch and we let them sit there and entertain themselves. What should we be doing? I'm, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that sometimes, but that can't be all the time because it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to impart into our children and our grandchildren and whoever God brings into your life as a child that you have influence over to instill within them the precepts and the concepts of God's word. That's our job, right? As parents and as grandparents, as aunts and uncles. So let's be intentional about that. Can people say that we're intentional about that? Paul said these people were full of the knowledge of God. And then he says, you're able to instruct. Not only were they full of God's goodness, they were full of God's knowledge, they were able to disciple one another. So Paul wasn't writing to them because they couldn't. He tells us he's ultimately writing to them by way of reminder because he knows that we are forgetful people, right? The gospel message is not just a one and done. We need to understand that. It's not just one and done, I, I did that, I got the certificate, right? And I, I don't need to hear that anymore. No, the gospel is about our in, the entirety of our life. It ought to inform and influence everything that we do in life, every day of our life. And Paul understood that about these people. And my question that I have to ask myself and then ask you is, could somebody say about me that I am able and eager to make disciples? Isn't that what Paul's saying to these people? They have the knowledge. They're able to instruct. And you might say, well, I'm not Paul. I can't do what Paul did. Well, you're not Paul, right? Nobody's asking you to be Paul. But I think there is a passage in the Scripture, if my mind serves me correctly, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, Hey, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, go ye therefore and make disciples. Well, to put that in the Southern English, the, the, the participles are in the plural, the verb, the only verb in that sentence is make disciples, and it's in the plural. And here's what Jesus was saying so we could understand it. Hey, all y'all go and make disciples is what he's saying. Every one of us who are believers, God has called us to be instructors, 
to those he brings into our circles of influence. We ought to be making disciples in some way. Hey, the best place to start is in the four walls of your house, right? Start there and then move your way out. All of us have been called to instruct. And the only way we can instruct is if we are first informed ourselves. And Paul says, hey, I'm persuaded that you people are this way. And then he goes on to talk about this, this commission that God had given him for his ministry in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly, and we know he did. In the very first 11 chapters, it was real bold. Uh, even in, in the, the, first part, or the first parts of uh, chapters 12 through 14, been bold as it relates to how we ought to treat one another and how we ought to relate to uh, the world around us. So Paul's written to them boldly by way of reminder, not because they didn't know, but just to remind them of what they already knew and to encourage them to continue because of, and here's the part about this commission. Paul's doing what he's doing. Why? Because God has given him this gift of grace. God has given him a gift of grace to be able to accomplish this ministry that God has called him to. And that, again, raises another question in my mind, anyway, every person who claims to be a follower of Christ has the Holy Spirit of God within them, right? And the Bible tells us in more than one place that every person who has the Holy Spirit within them, that God has gifted them for ministry. So the question is, are you, am I using the gift that God has given me for ministry? It might not be that you stand up in front of a group of people and you uh, teach or preach or you sit around a, a table and you lead the discussion. That might not be your gift. It might be. If it is, are you doing that? Maybe your gift is manifest in a different way, but that gift God's given you is meant to, to benefit the body of Christ and to edify the body of Christ and to make disciples. There's not a person who's come to faith in Christ that God intends for you to sit on the sideline and not use your gift that he's given you. Every believer has a gift, and God has called you to use it for the benefit of the kingdom of God and for the glory of God himself. So are you using that gift? There is no excuse. If you have breath in your lungs and you are able, right, I understand we get to a place physically in our lives that we are just not able to go. I think God understands that. But if you are physically able and you have breath in your life, you ought to be about using the gift that God has given you. And even if you physically can't do it and he's still giving you breath and a voice, you can use that, right? Use whatever means we have to accomplish what it is that God has called us to be about as believers. Paul understood that it was because of this grace gift that it was the thing that shaped his life. When he came to faith in Christ, this gift shaped his life. It drove him to do and be what he was. And then we see that Paul talks about this calling to service that God had given him in verse 16. He's called him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul had a specific role to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean Paul neglected the Jews. What do we read about Paul in the book of Acts? Whenever he came into a city, where's the first place he always went? It was to the synagogue. And he reasoned with the Jews. And when they wouldn't listen to him, some of them did, but when most of them wouldn't listen to him, he left there and he went to the Gentiles. 
Sometimes he even got angry and shook his, the dust off his coat and says, hey, I've done with you guys. I've done what God's asked me to do. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. They'll listen to me. He had a specific calling to the Gentiles. Well, God's given us a specific calling to go into all the world, right? Panta ta ethnos, to go to all people groups and make disciples. Here's the neat thing. You, you might not even be called to mission work where you go across the world and, and uh, you know, use your gift in that way. Some people are. That's what God called them to do. He's gifted them to that. That is their passion. But guess what God has done for us in this country? He's brought the world to us. He's brought the world all around us. And God is asking you. This is, this is, this is the heart of Christianity for almost everybody. God is asking you to be faithful in the gift that he's given you, in the calling that he's given you, in the place that he has planted you, wherever that is. That's the way majority of people, even in, even in Israel, in their covenant relationship with God, the majority of them, you know how they worked out their faith every day? They worked out their faith, caring for their family, tending their flock, plowing their fields. That's how they worked out their faith. And guess what? That's the reality for you and I today, right? You and me. How do the majority of believers in this world work out their faith? Every single day in the grind of the day, in our occupation, in our home, whatever it is that God has set our hand to do, we work our faith out in that way. And we can be faithful ministers of the gospel of Christ right where God's planted us if we want to be. If we're not, it's not because God hadn't given us opportunity. It's because we're not taking the opportunity that God has given us to be faithful to the calling that he set before us. And so Paul says, that's my ministry. God's called me to it. And I'm going to be faithful to it. And he goes on to talk about being a servant or a priestly service of the gospel of God. And we think about the priestly service. We think about sacrifice. We think about serving the people. That's really what the priests did. They ministered before God on behalf of the people. God's called us to be that way. Isn't that what Peter tells us? That we are a kingdom of priests, right? We are called to minister before God on behalf of the people. In whatever capacity God has gifted you, as part of the kingdom of God, you are a, you are a kingdom of priests. Minister to those around you in, in, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and use the gift that God has given you in whatever capacity he's given you to be able uh, to do that. And then don't forget this. Look what he says. The only way that he gives glory is to Christ, right? It's all because of who Christ is, not because of who he is. Because sometimes we can get the big head, can't we? We, we, can, get the, we can get that Nebuchadnezzar syndrome, can't we? Where we look out into you know, a ministry or we look out into our own life and we say, man, look what I have built. Look what I have done. You know what Paul says? Paul says in verse 17, it's in Christ Jesus only. Listen, look what he says here. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. 
by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that uh, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Whose ministry is it? What is Christ's ministry? It's about the gospel of Christ, and Paul understood that. He said, this is not about me. It's all about Jesus. Even Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. And that wasn't at the beginning of his ministry. That was about 20 years into his ministry. And he looked at his own life and says, I am the biggest sinner there is around here. And if God can use Paul, we talked about it in Sunday school. You know, Peter, we were, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane in the book of, book of John. And Peter, whenever they come to arrest Jesus, what does he do? He reaches, pulls his sword out and he cuts off the ear of the servant uh, of, of the high priest there. Man, Peter, he always put his foot in his mouth, didn't he? He always acted irrationally, didn't he? If God can use somebody like Peter, then God can use somebody like you and somebody like me. Right? And it's to God that the glory goes because I'm nobody without Christ. You're nobody without Christ. We are all in all in Christ. And whatever is accomplished in our life is to the glory of God and it's because of who he is and what he's doing in and through us. And we need to give the glory and honor to him. Not only that, he talks about this power of the Holy Spirit that's within him. Man, that struck a chord with me because I think, uh, as one author has put it uh, in a book title that he wrote uh, dealing with the forgotten trinity, that the Holy Spirit is one of the most forgotten persons of the trinity, right? Especially among we who are Baptists, right? We, we, we get scared of the Holy Spirit sometimes, right? My wife always telling me, yeah, <laughs> I'm scared of the Holy Spirit. no. But we, we have such an aversion to the charismatic misuse of, uh, you know, gifts and things like that, that I think sometimes we lean the other way. And you and I need to understand. The book of Ephesians chapter 1, very clear. Everyone who is a believer has the Holy Spirit in them, right? Every one of us. The same Spirit that Paul talks about that has this power that were able to accomplish wonders and signs to bring about this ministry and to bring Gentiles to faith, guess what? You have the same Holy Spirit in you. I have the same Holy Spirit in me. We have the same third person of the Trinity that has the same power. It's not diminished. The power of the Holy Spirit has not diminished. All of us have within us the Spirit of God, to help us to accomplish what God has called us to do. The Holy Spirit will equip you to do what it is that God wants you to do. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do what it is that God wants you to do. Let us trust God. Let us trust the Spirit of God. Let us yield to the Spirit of God in whatever it is that God's called us to be and do in life. I get it. Hey, I am, I am an introvert. You know, I know when I'm up here on Sunday morning, sometimes it don't seem like that, but I am an introvert. It, it scares me to no end to have to go up to a stranger and to begin to carry on a conversation. Now, God had, uh, had a sense of humor in my life because he knows I'm that way. And he's, he, he gave me this opportunity to work that out in a place called Sears and Roebuck for 13 years, right? Where I worked on commission sales 
And you know, if you work on commission sales, if you don't sell, then you don't eat, right? So God forced me to fake it, okay, until I make it, right? And so, uh, speaking from someone who understands the difficulty and the fear, when, when I was in school, I would take a zero rather than get up and give a speech in class. I did take a zero rather than get up and take a speech. So what does God do? He says, hey, I want you to be a preacher. And I says, no, I don't think you do want me to be a preacher, God. I think you are misunderstanding uh, what you are thinking right now. And so for eight years, uh, God battled with me over this issue, right? And he had to help me understand, hey, I don't need you, okay? But I'm calling you for a purpose and a reason. And sometimes I still don't know why he's called me, right? But God called me and he's asking me to be obedient to him and trust him to do what it is he's going to do in me. Because when I am weak, he is strong, right? And that's what God's saying to all of us today. That's what he said about Paul. If somebody can take Paul, who tried to destroy the church, and use him to turn this world upside down for Christianity, he can, he can use any one of us. Because he's God. And he don't need any of us. But he chooses to use us as a means to accomplish his will in this world. And we ought to say, I don't deserve it, but thank you, Lord, for letting me be a part of what you're doing. And I think that's what Paul's heart is. But just look at the amazing thing that Paul talks about God doing through him. He says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now, if you just read that and you don't, Look, study it or think about it. You won't have any idea what that means. But go home. I did this. Go home and get on Google Maps and put in Jerusalem and put in, it's really uh, um, Albania, I think it's the, uh, around Yemen, uh, is the current place up in Turkey. Put that in and say, how far is it from here to there? Now, if you drove it today, that's 1,700 miles. 32 hours by car. If you flew there, it's five hours by plane. Well, he didn't have plane or car, Paul, uh, when he did that. Some estimates are, depends on how he went, he could have went by boat to some of the journey. But at a minimum, 1,000 miles, at a maximum 1,700 miles, is the distance between Jerusalem and Illyricum. Can you imagine walking, maybe riding a donkey, Maybe a wagon, 1,700 miles. And that was Paul's passion to go to those places and do those kinds of things. Here's the sad reality about we who are American Christians. Sometimes we can't even get enough gumption up to get out of the bed and drive two miles to come to church, much less go 1,700 miles, walking every step of the way to carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. That ought to make you think about. Do we really believe what God's word says, is, says about the eternal damnation that is awaiting those who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Paul, his passion was to be obedient to Christ in the ministry call.
And that, that leads us to the, to the last section, which is a, a little picture of his plan for the future. He didn't get into the full detail of it until the next chapter, I don't think, when he's talking about going to Spain. But Paul says in verse 20 and 21, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. What's your ambition in life? Is there anything? I get it. I'm not saying to you, you got to be a person who stands here. This is just a small part of preaching the gospel. You understand that? Well, what I'm doing right here, this is a small part. The real heart of it is what I do not here when I'm out there and what you do when you're not here and when you're out there. So what, what is your ambition in life? What is my ambition in life? I would venture to say for a lot of us, our ambition in life has very little to do with preaching the gospel. It has more to do with how can I amass for myself enough wealth where I am safe, satisfied, and healthy. I would say for a lot of people in America, even those who call themselves Christians, the ambition of life is to pursue the American dream. Right? Right? Well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with us wanting to be healthy and safe and satisfied or pursuing the American dream necessarily. I think what God is trying to say to us through the example of Paul is that our chief ambition in life ought to be about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ as we go about our life, wherever it is and whatever we do. That's Paul's focus. Does, does your relationship with Jesus Christ drive everything else about your life? Does it drive the decisions you make about your life? Where you live, where you go to school, what occupation, how you raise your children? Does it? I think at the center of our life ought to be first and foremost our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then everything else ought to orbit around that relationship. And sometimes I think we get that all mixed up. But Paul, his ambition was to preach the gospel. He says, I want to go, look at what he says in the second part of that verse 20. Not where Christ has already been named. He wanted to go to places where people had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. Maybe, hey, maybe God's calling you to that. You know, even from a little place like Friendship Baptist Church out in the middle of, you know, a little bit of old town called Tallahassee, or Alabama, God can call somebody to go around the world and share the gospel. Do you know that? He could do that. He may be doing that. Right? Don't think he can't. Here's, here's the hard part. It's when he does, be like Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. That's the hard part. Right? Because sometimes you don't know how he's going to get you there or how it's going to look when you get there. But just be obedient. Be faithful to whatever it is God's calling you to be. Uh, verse 21. But as it is written, those who have not heard have, have been told of him will see him, and those who have never heard him will understand. 
Now, here's what I'm not saying to you. I'm not saying that you got to be a Paul. There's only one Paul, right? You don't have to be a Paul. And your ministry don't have to look like Paul. But I think we ought to follow the example of Paul's heart when it comes to whatever it is that God has called us to be and do. And be passionate and put Christ first in our life. And let who we are in Christ drive everything else in our life. Now, are you looking at a person who's done that perfectly all his life? Absolutely not. Do I do it perfectly even currently in my life? Absolutely not. But that is the desire of my heart. And it ought to grieve your heart and my heart, all of our hearts, when we fail to do that. We have lost this concept in American Christianity that who we are in Christ is paramount in our lives. And I think that our prayer, my prayer is that God would bring us back to that, right? You know where it starts? It starts with you. It starts with me, individually. And then that will spill over into our family and into our friends. So, how has God equipped you? How has God designed you to be used for his kingdom? Are you being faithful to do that? Well, if not, if you don't know, well, ask somebody, right? That's how God communicates to us sometimes. Because God will bring people around you and say, hey, man, you're pretty good at that, right? Have you ever thought about doing this? That's one of the things God used to influence me to say yes to him. I know I'm not saying I'm the best preacher that ever lived. I'm far from that. I get it. But... At that moment in my life, people said, hey, I see something in you. Have you ever thought about doing this? And I said, yeah, about eight years, and I've been saying no. And finally, I said, yes, whatever you want me to do, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. That's the place you got to get. That's the place all of us have to get. Whatever it is you want me to do, Lord, I'm yours. Right? My life is yours. My resources are yours. Whatever you bless me with is yours. Use it for the advancement of your kingdom. Well, I'm going to pray. There she comes. We're going to do the communion. Got that some music. Uh, we're going to take communion again. As we transition into this time of communion, the table of the Lord is for those who are believers in the Lord, right? It doesn't save us. It doesn't keep us saved. Nothing magical about the grape juice, right? You know, we're Baptists. We don't use real wine. So nothing magical about the grape juice in there. Nothing magical about the crackers in the, in the bowl. They are representative of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross of Calvary. And when we come to this table, we, we are remembering, we are celebrating what Jesus did for us. And it's one way that we share the gospel in practice, right? As we remember and honor and partake in uh, the elements of the Lord's table. One thing Paul asked us to do before we come to the table, right? You remember when he was writing to the church of Corinth? He says, hey, the way you people are coming to the table of the Lord, it is sinful. And that's the reason some of you are sick, and that's the reason some of you are dead. Some of you have died, because you're coming to the table in an unworthy manner. 
And so Paul calls upon us to examine ourselves and to allow God to show us those elements of sinfulness in our life that we may confess to him. You know what confession is? It's not just making a list of your sins. It's agreeing with God that they are sinful. And it's asking God to help you not do that again. And so today, just for a few moments, we'll bow our heads and you let God search your life. And maybe there's something in your life that you need to confess to him. Maybe, hey, if you have a quiet time, a daily devotion, maybe God has shown you this every day and you're always confessing before the Lord. I'm a firm believer that the more we walk with the Lord and the closer we get to the Lord, the more the more prescient we, we are, are our sins in our life, right? We, we see them more acutely and we confess more and more because we, we are more aware of them. And so maybe that's your life and, hey, you're, you're right on target, but maybe not today. Well, this is your opportunity to begin that. So just a minute or two of silence and I'll pray and then we'll, we'll begin the Lord's Supper. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for this opportunity you've given us to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, that in spite of our sinfulness, as a matter of fact, as Paul reminded us in Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You loved us when we were unlovable. You stepped out of heaven and stepped into the mire of sinful humanity. You reached down in that muck and mire and you pulled us out. And you redeemed us. And you covered us in your blood. You made us whole. But Paul doesn't stop in Romans chapter 5, Lord. He keeps on writing. and Eventually we get to Romans 7. Where Paul says, the things that I want to do, I can't seem to do. And the things I don't want to do seem to be the very things that I end up doing. And there's this battle, this war that rages within me between the spirit and the flesh. And his question, his plea, if you will, at the bottom, Lord, is who will save me? Well, it's only you that can save us, Lord. So I ask that you would help us this morning as we contemplate who you are, what it is that you've done for us through the cross of Christ, that you would reveal to us in our hearts any area where we have gone astray from you, Lord, any, any sin that we're harboring in our soul. Maybe, Lord, even that private sin that's in our life that we keep hidden from other people, maybe you would reveal that, Lord, make that, make that come to our mind in this moment that we would, we would repent, that we would confess, and that, Lord, you would, you would help us to overcome. Prepare us, Lord, as we endeavor to come and honor you and the sacrifice you have made as we partake of the elements of this table. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I always like to start with Luke chapter 22. And Luke chapter 22 really kind of is the backdrop for where our Sunday school lesson was this morning in the Gospel of John because the 
Jesus has come to his final Passover and he's sending, he's sending his disciples ahead of, ahead of him to prepare uh, this Passover. And it's out of that Passover meal that he inaugurates what we call the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the communion. Um, and so I want to read that passage to you. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare uh, the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he has entered and tell him, the master, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So. At